We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Dei Mater Alma Atve Semper Virgo Felix Welcome everybody to uh well the first book review of our my own publishing Census Fidelia Press and it's a the tra- it's a wowzer of a title, The Devil's Bagpipe. I almost thought about getting bagpipe music playing in the background. I, Father Robert Nixon, who everyone probably has heard once or twice, well, on my channel about six or seven or eight times, but he's been around EWTN quite a few times because this is a partnership with Tan doing some translations with them and other things. He is rocking and rolling with the translations uh, all over the place. Anyway, Father Nixon, welcome. It's a it's a cool. Uh, what I say, it's fourteen degrees here in the south in the southeast tonight, and it's morning where he is, and it's probably one hundred fifty degrees Fahrenheit, forty something, forty three degrees. He said Celsius in his land in the middle of uh, Australia. So, Father, good morning to you. <laughs> well, good evening to you, Steve. It's great to be with you and to to catch up about this work. Yeah, no, appreciate you doing this thing, and uh, uh, yeah, it's a cool read, and it's, I mean, you have all these books, uh, uh, The Life of Luther, The Facts About Luther, uh, the only problem with that one was that a lot of people say is uh, there's no citations anywhere, uh, but anyways, you found this uh, book, it's a translation out of a, kind of like a carve out of a bigger work, but who, of James Lang, that I, am I saying it right, Lang, L. A-I-N-G. Yeah, that's Lang? right. Who was he? Lang? You you bring him up in the intro. So so he was a uh, a Scottish uh gentleman. He moved to Paris to study. He was a very great scholar. And while he was over in Paris studying, he found that Scotland uh succumbed to the uh, Lutheran heresy, the Protestant schism. So he was basically left as an exile. Uh, in France, but he took full, um, he made the best of this situation. He was a professor of theology at the University of Paris and the University of Sorbonne. So he was one of the leading scholars of his time. And um, he wrote, apart from historical works, he also wrote books on doctrine, uh, canon law, theology, and so forth. And the great thing about him, what makes him very well qualified to write this book, is that he actually lived through the events concerned. This book was first published in 1581. And at this time, all of these things which had gone on were still within recent memory. So he produces this wonderful book, and he wrote in such a way that it was intended for the general interested audience. So it's not um, overly uh, technical, and he explains things very well as he goes along. So it's a it's a really, uh, I think, a great read uh, by this by this James Lang or Jacobus Langus, as he's given in Latin, um, who was uniquely qualified to describe the events uh, of very recent history in his time. Yeah, you're right. It's not like a you need a doctorate degree to read this. There's a hundred some odd pages, very readable chapters, about two, three pages at the most, maybe four, uh, kind of right to the point with everything. Didn't really, you know, uh, you know, get too much in the weeds. The only time he got in the weeds was trying to get into uh, Henry VIII. But uh, yeah. So who was, who was Luther? I mean, he's, he points out the he, he's very fair in his writing. I'll say that. He is. And you know, he, he is, um, this is not just propaganda, this work, because he actually points out Luther's um, merits and talents and where he um, where he did things out of sincere motivations and also, of course, his faults. 
Now, who Luther was? So he was born to uh, fairly obscure parents, um, but excelled at an early age in his studies. And because of this, and because of the fact that he was his parents' only child, they pushed him forward into his studies. And um, he progressed at a great rate. He went uh, to study uh, the usual thing, Latin, philosophy, rhetoric, then progressed to law. There was a turning point in his life, though. So at this stage, he was, you know, quite ambitious, um, you know, probably typical young man, I'd say, in, in certain respects. He went out with one of his friends um, to for a walk in the countryside to relax. And a storm broke out and his friend was struck with lightning and killed. And this led Luther to a kind of radical but temporary conversion. Um, he decided to give up all the pleasures of the world and enter monastic life, which he did. He joined the Augustinians. And um, he, uh, people who knew him thought, you know, he's never going to make it as an Augustinian. But he actually applied himself hard for the first few years. But it was at this stage that his ambitions, his desire for self-glory, for fame, for power and so forth, began to emerge once more. So the Augustinians in Germany were not in a great state at this time. Uh, there was a lot of anger within the Augustinians because the Dominicans had been appointed uh, to handle the dealing of papal indulgences. So the, the Augustinians lost a lot of money out of this. So anyway, uh, Luther, with the support originally of the Augustinians, started this kind of campaign against indulgences. But other things had happened in his life before this. During his early years as an Augustinian monk, he had um, he'd kind of shown signs of demonic possession, or at least being psychologically unbalanced. And it was this was recognized amongst his confreres within the order. Um, at another stage, he traveled to Rome to sort out some problems within the German Augustinians. And he actually, for whatever reason, expected the Pope to make him a cardinal. And he was only in his early 20s at this time. And when this didn't happen, he was filled with an anger and bitterness against the Pope, which continued throughout his whole life. He had this continual uh, animosity against the Pope, against hierarchical religion. Yet at the same time, it was his greatest desire as a young man to rise to the ranks of glory as he saw it within the church yeah, even uh it brings up his uh his uh parents had a problem with the there was a rumor going around that uh, they had some demonic uh uh act activities or things like that in their lives i mean he was born out of wedlock uh, uh born on the visual yeah, um, if so this is something which which the author um notes the, he notes this only as a, a rumor right. that before his his before his parents were married, his mother um, was visited by this demonic entity and conceived him by that means. Um, you know, this is probably a legend, but the point is that he was conceived out of wedlock in in circumstances which were not wholly um, wholly known or explained. Um, we also read that in his early days as an Augustinian monk, he would have nocturnal conversations with devils. And he himself records this, that he has had all these encounters with demonic entities. And one of his earliest books, a book upon the theology of the Mass and the Eucharist, he actually presents in the form of a dialogue with a demon. And, um, you know, this is a really unusual way for a theologian to write a work. Um, so he, yeah, he starts off with this very confused uh, background and whether whether it was, you know, a real demon or whether it was just a, a sign of psychological imbalance. But there is this certain fixation on the dark side of things with Luther, um, this this sense that he was always in close conversation uh, with with the devil, as he as he himself said. Yeah, James brings up uh, the fifth gospel uh, that uh, was his, his direct quote was uh, 
It was taught his theology by a demon that he presents is the newly invented fifth gospel, which this new species of heretic who himself was taught his theology by a demon presents to us. I mean, he did not hold back his words. <laughs> no, he, he doesn't. He, I mean, um, he is, uh, he's very strong in the way he expresses things, but I think this is justified because, you know, at the time he saw his own country, um, taken over violently yeah. by this uh, Lutheran heresy. He saw so much violence going on in the world around him. And, and he saw how this, you know, destroyed the faith, um, not only of individuals, but of whole nations. It separated them from communion with the one church. And, you know, it was the beginning of a great wave of confusion. Um and I think we still see the repercussions of this wave today. This idea that people can work out uh, theological questions for themselves without reference to the church. And, and this is a fundamental mistake. You know, the idea that um, anyone is free to come up with their own idea about whatever aspect of faith or mor morality they want and just to run with it. And I think this idea is the real... Um, is the real demonic thing, is the real destruction wrought by the Protestant schism. Not so much particular ideas about grace and salvation, but rather the whole thing that you can just work it out for yourself. And this applies to everything, questions of female ordination and so forth. The idea that everyone's got an opinion and everyone's opinion is just as good as any other. No, there was, I didn't know, well, maybe I did. I don't remember. There was the, the, the 95 theses that he posted up there. Uh, somebody wrote back immediately. That was a big time theologian. There was 107, 100, responses back to him um, on the controversy at that yeah. time. And it, it pretty much all he did was, which we'll see in the future, is just return, return fire with uh, name calling and uh, ad hominem attacks, basically. Yeah. Absolutely. And these 95 theses, there's there's this kind of myth around that what he did was he, you know, one night nailed them to the door of a cathedral. And this was a very courageous move and everything. In fact, that incident never happened. Um, it seems to have been made up sometime in the 19th century. It's a kind of myth. Basically, he, he circulated these 95 theses quite publicly. And he would kind of go around holding uh, debating shows. He would he would put these theses forward and then invite people to come up and argue with them. And he, he made copies of them. He sent them to, um, to noblemen, to princes, uh, to universities. And he did this, funnily enough, at the beginning with the support of the other Augustinians in Germany. So the Augustinians in Germany were not in fantastic shape at that stage. They were against Rome and particularly against the Dominicans. Um, but, yeah, he was criticised, you know, refuted by, by literally dozens, if not hundreds, of theologians at the time, professors pointing out faults. But his method of, of responding to these um, was not to respond logically, but rather with uh, cruel ad hominem attacks. And in one case, we hear about um, where they they wrote, they published works um, mocking this poor fellow, this poor theologian. And um, one of his colleagues, one of Luther's colleagues, felt so guilty about what they'd done to this guy that they destroyed his life and reputation, that he actually um, drowned himself in a river. Um, so, you know, Luther was, he was not, a rational arguer. I mean, he he probably he had the skills and knowledge to argue in a rational way, but he had also this very violent temper, which um, comes across in so many of his interactions. You know, the Pope at the time sent a cardinal, uh, Cardinal Cajetan, who was a, a tremendously learned theologian, to talk reasonably with Luther, to try to reconcile him, to give him the opportunity of retracting his errors and getting back on track. And Luther, you know, responded in an absolute appalling fashion. Um, 
basically with uh, with mockery of this of of these attempts to reconcile him and and this was a thing which was going throughout his life and became progressively worse and if we read luther's works um we find a lot of extremely violent and hateful expressions you know he was uh, extremely not only against his own enemies against the church against the pope he was also violently anti-semitic he he suggested that all the jews in germany should be burnt this shows the kind of uh, man that he was yeah and he was kind of like a politician in a sense because there was a time that he wrote uh, leo the 10th he dedicated a book to him this is after the thesis and pretty much uh see, you, do you have the it was on uh uh where was the uh uh, was it page? Uh, yeah, you have. Uh, yes, sir, I the, think I know what you mean. Page twenty three, twenty two. Yeah, yeah. He he wrote he wrote this book dedicating it to Leo the tenth, and this is how he writes. This show is the kind of um, flattery which he uses. Most blessed Father, I prostrate myself before you, and cast myself down before the feet of your holiness all that i am and all that i have done i offer to you alone as you will summon me to life or kill me call me to yourself or reprimand me approve me or reprove me do unto me i beg of you whatever best pleases your holiness for your voice is the very voice of christ himself who speaks through you alone if you consider me deserving of death then most gladly shall i die and this is the kind of um, flattery which we find from Luther. At this point, he, he probably thought he still has a chance within the Catholic Church, you know, that he's going to be made a cardinal or an archbishop or who knows what. Um, so he was like covering all of his bases. He didn't hesitate to, uh, to flatter, to ingratiate himself to people, not only the Pope, but also to uh, the princes and noblemen of, of Germany. Um, he really um, had this, this thing of, of flattering and, and crawling and uh, in, a, in a quite offensive way, as you can see there, because that's completely over the top. You know, and as, as Catholics, of course, we, vener we, we respect the papacy. We, we listen carefully to their words. We're obedient to the uh, ex-cathedra statements. Of, but, but he's going over the top, you know, to the Pope do with me whatever you will, that I hear in you the voice of Christ. And, you know, this is, is over the top. It's a kind of hyper-papalism. So he had a, a little streak of that in himself as well. Basically, well, it came down that, to... Well, the author catches that and says before that, it goes, thus like a venomous serpent, one thing was expressed in his mouth while the very opposite thoughts lurked in his heart. Yeah. That you know, uh, Steve. That's that's very true. That's that this kind of hypocrisy, and he points that uh, ambition is a characteristic of almost all heretics. They're always trying to look out for how they can distinguish themselves, how they can get ahead in their own way. And you know, I think for Luther, he wasn't happy with having a pope above him. He basically wanted to be pope of his own church. We mentioned hypocrisy. One one of the chapter is on hypocrisy, and I guess what happened was, uh, uh, he uh, he he backed himself in a corner so bad that when Cajun didn't at all uh, responded back to him, he couldn't respond. He he had he was repeating himself. He was saying things that he he was he was canceling each other out. He was he basically ended up stopped talking. Because he was so bad at what he was saying and the hypocrisy from his life. I mean, there's an episode when he's at the bar getting just slosh drunk, dressed in his Augustine uh, uh, yeah. and, um, and and you know, I think I think we see uh, we see this kind of that when he engages in debate with people, the moment he realizes that they're getting the better of him, that he can't answer their questions in a satisfactory way. Um, he either becomes silent or he reverts to these violent personal criticisms. And about this incident of him uh, getting drunk in his monastic habit, this was when he was on his way uh, to the Diet of Worms. 
And um, I'll, I'll just uh, read a little bit about this. So the Diet of Worms was a meeting uh, called by the Holy Roman Emperor um, in order to resolve this situation because he saw that Germany was kind of falling to pieces. Some princes were supporting Luther, uh, others were loyal to Rome. And um, so he wanted to, you know, basically put an end to this chaos. And on the way, as Luther was traveling to Worms to attend this diet, he went with a whole retinue uh, of people, um, you know, a whole kind of uh, big band of hooligans, basically. And he describes this. He says, um, the horrendous and shocking spectacle of this band of merry travellers was such that it caused amazement and wonder amongst all who witnessed it and was upon the lips of all the people as an unprecedented scandal for in whatever tavern or inn they entered Luther would have copious amounts of wine brought out and he and his companions would spend the whole day getting drunk dancing and making disgusting jokes and playing foolish pranks. As is the case with many Germans, often Luther and his friends would seem to be perfectly sober as long as they were seated at the table. But as soon as they stood up, it became clear that they were utterly intoxicated, lacking control of their hands, feet and tongues. And if they were not able to control the limbs of their bodies, how much more surely were their brains addled? Furthermore, so that nothing might be lacking in their debauched merriment, many of those who in their drunken state considered themselves expert musicians would begin to sing, dance, or pound on musical instruments. A veritable cacophony of clapping and an infernal chaos of so-called dancing would then break out. How beautiful and sweet did Luther imagine that harmony to be, as if he were a new Orpheus. But in truth, he was more like a debauched Bacchus, returning to Germany in drunken triumph after having plundered the Orient of all those treasures. Um, all those who beheld these dreadful things were astonished and aghast, and were filled with chilling horror. For indeed, it was not merely ridiculous, but wicked, wicked sinister and impious. For here was Luther displaying himself as a depraved monster, all the while still clad in his monastic garb, and displaying the tonsure of a professed member of the Augustinian order, while dancing and singing in a state of the most bestial intoxication. So this kind of points to Luther's um, character here. Uh, you know, he he drank heavily. Um, he was he was violent. He was given to this kind of crude, very crude humor um, at times. But then on the other hand, when he thought it was to his advantage, he could be very flattering and so forth. Of course, a lot of people saw through this flattering and hypocrisy side. And the interesting thing is that long after he had really split with the Catholic Church, he continued to dress as a monk to wear this Augustinian habit. Um, and uh, this, I think, is is one of the things which kind of made himself so uh, so ridiculous. Like you said, I mean, like I brought up before the politician side of him, he was flattery, but, you know, he had a different, he had a, there was reasons for his, uh, his, uh, his actions, like uh, the new emperor, uh, was it Frederick, uh, the Duke, uh, the Duke of Saxony, the, it was a friendly emperor just died and he's trying to convert the new one out of the Catholic faith with the, was it Von Huden, uh, guy that wrote the the Holy, uh, was it the Roman Trinity book? Is just another blasphemous book. Uh, uh, I think the author writes it as a godless book. Yeah. Um, so when when the this new emperor uh, was was put in place, and he was only a very young man at the stage when he became emperor, Luther straight away tried. To, to get him onto his side of things. But luckily, this young emperor saw through um, what was going on, and he, he took a firm stance against Luther, despite all the efforts that had been made um, to, to bring him around to Luther's own way of thinking. And it's, it's funny how there was, if somebody died, depending on what side it was on, this man took advantage of that situation to the, it's literally what, you know, here now, never let a good, uh, 
a crisis go to waste. He was the he was right on top of that back then. If a, if an emperor died, he was looking for an in. Or if the if a friendly if a, if a non friendly died, he was like, all right, I'm in. And we're gonna. And it was the Pilgrims' Revolt when he ended up telling the people that hey, it's your layman can go ahead and steal from the the monasteries and get the land back. And how much death that uh, you know came from that? Yeah, ab absolutely. And this was one of the the things in Luther's life. In Germany, there was what was known as a, a, a peasants' uh, revolt and also a knights' uprising. And basically, both of these were excuses for people to to plunder monasteries and churches. And Luther said, you know, that it, it was morally okay to do this because this was, you know, taking possession of things which, according to him, really. Uh, shouldn't be in the hands of these monastic orders. But of course, people were motivated by greed um, and they saw it as, as a justification for bad behavior and then they went for it completely. And as a result of this, he mentions how many monasteries were closed uh, or destroyed in Germany. It was something close to 300 and the number of deaths which resulted from this was uh, unimaginable. He talks about this at one stage, and I think he says uh, in a single series of uprisings, there was like 26,000 deaths, which um, which is a massive number. I mean, it might not sound massive to us today when we hear about, you know, hundreds of thousands of dying, but of course the population was much less. So this was, you know, a, a very big portion of the population. And um, the weapons were as bloodshed. Weren't. Yeah, you didn't have automatic uh, bow and arrows. No, I mean, uh, people were basically being were being clubbed to death, being killed with um, swords or or, um, or 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 clubs or stones or or bows and arrows or whatever. So it, you know, it was kind of a, a pretty bloody and brutal way to die because killing in those days didn't mean just pulling a trigger. Killing meant uh, literally, physically destroying another human yeah. being. Yeah. There was a he remember at the beginning I brought up the whole when he gets off topic into England and King Henry VIII and uh, he mentions a uh, Johann Cockley Cockleyus uh, I'm butchering Cockleus, his name yeah. but there was a, a friend of Luther's um, ended up uh, you know suiciding himself uh, killing himself in the river drowned himself and he tried to bring his soul back yeah um, and I will. Uh... I will sh share with you about that section. Let me just uh, find it here in the book. It was on page 70. Or 82, 82, I'm sorry. 82, okay, thank you. Thanks, Steve. I've just got it here. Um, So now the story, by the way, about Henry VIII. Um, when Henry VIII first received copies of Luther's books, uh, he was he was quite appalled, and he very quickly wrote a book in response, a book called uh, "An Assertion of the Seven Sacraments Against Martin Luther," and this book was something of a masterpiece. Um, that, that is the cover of it, as you can see. And it was is believed to have been co-written um, probably with St. Thomas Moore um, and St. John Fisher as well. Because, you know, Henry VIII was actually a pretty learned guy. And um, and he wrote this, this wonderful book, probably with help. Um, and as a result of this, the Pope gave him the title Defensor Fide or Defender of the Faith. And the English monarchs still use that title to this day. But a little bit later in Henry's life, um, he was overcome by by lust, basically. His his wife, he felt, was, was too old and he wanted a new one. And the Pope wouldn't let him do that. So he found, you know, he never actually became a Lutheran himself. But at the same time, he, he broke with the authority of the Roman Church. Now, uh, I'm talking about this uh, incident in which Luther's friend commits suicide. Um, 
and then Luther tries to bring his soul back. So basically, I'll just uh, just get to this. So um, this Johann Cochleus, who was a very distinguished theologian uh, in Germany, he wrote two works against Luther, one on the grace of the sacraments and the other on infant baptism. Uh, Luther had barely finished reading the first of these volumes when he and his companion, William Neeson, wrote and published a letter in reply. This vitriolic and bitter piece of writing is filled with scandalous insults, mockery and crude jokes directed against the learned Cochleys. So appalling and tasteless is this letter that one can hardly read it without feeling ashamed. And much less can one give this disgusting piece of libel to anyone else to read. A little later, later Neeson, this is the friend of Luther, who had helped Luther write this document, drowned himself in the Elbe River, which runs by Wittenberg, apparently struck by guilt at the cruel and scandalous way he and Luther had defamed Cochleus. Luther was overcome with black despair at his associate's suicide. But such was his delusional arrogance that Luther prayed over the dead body of his partner in crime, firmly but vainly believing that he would be able to summon forth his soul from the infernal darkness of the underworld to reanimate the waterlogged corpse of the unfortunate suicide. After failing in this attempt, Luther then renewed his vitriolic attacks on the pious and respectable Cochleus, calling him a defender and protector of tonsured monks. So I think this was one of the incidents in Luther's life that we don't often hear about. Uh, this personal hurt that he was causing left, right and centre, not only against Cochleus, um, who was his direct victim, who he was mocking in public and, you know, uh, basically slandering, but also against Luther's own associate, who was overtaken by guilt, that they were, you know, destroying the life of this innocent man. And so felt guilty about it and took his own life. We see that none of this moderated Luther's behavior, but his response to everything basically was always to become more extreme and more violent in his own approach. So um, he, he had no, it seems as if he had no humility, no capacity to look at himself and saying, well, you know, maybe I got this wrong. And later on, when he's defending his own work, after this is after Henry VIII uh, wrote to him and, and you know, corrected his work. Um, he said he didn't care if the King of England or the Emperor of uh, the Turks or the Holy Roman Emperor or the Pope or all the cardinals in the world contradicted him. If anyone spoke against him, they were doomed for the fires of hell. And this is how extreme he was. He began to see himself as like the mouthpiece of God. He started to believe that the church had been getting things wrong for the last 1500 years. And it was only him who was, you know, finally revealing as he saw it, the, the, the truth of the gospel. But in reality, it wasn't the truth. It was, um, it was basically his own invention. And I think this is a powerful call to, uh, to humility for everyone. Always be prepared to step back from our own personal opinions and say for a moment, you know, maybe I'm wrong about this. And, um, and this was something Luther was utterly incapable of doing. Yeah, then you say something like, uh, yeah, I don't care if a hundred uh, thousand St. Augustines uh, said this. I, you know, I, I am Martin Luther's. The councils, the churches, everybody was wrong until he came along. And whoo, the hubris. Uh, how about you, you mentioned yeah. a story I didn't know about or mentioned stories that we most people don't know. The, the she donkey of Jerusalem. I didn't know. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, no, I didn't know about that. And, you know, this is this relates to um, to Luther's, uh, well, you know, so-called wife. What happened was um, a, a certain man went and kidnapped a bunch of nuns from a Cistercian convent. Uh, he kidnapped nine of these um, women, nine of these nuns. And one of them ended up uh, becoming Luther's um, 
wife or not really wife because as the author points out they were both already bound by vows of chastity luther as an augustinian and as a priest and um katrina um his girlfriend was a vowed cistercian nun so neither of them could actually validly contract a marriage but they lived uh, together uh, in in a conjugal relationship but it wasn't quite as simple as it seems because he points out that even when they were together this um so-called wife of his would give um well I'll, I'll read the text which he gives there because i think it expresses it uh, better than i could myself it was well known that as long as this katrina cohabited in wittenberg with luther she would also share her companies and favors freely with the young scholastics there indeed she was said to be like the proverbial she donkey of jerusalem which was available for the common use of all um so he uh, i mean it's a fairly uh, i guess a crude and unpleasant image and I guess in the past, um, most historians have been inclined to write these things out of history, to leave them out of history, not only uh, the Protestant historians, obviously, um, but also Catholics, because, you know, we, we don't like to uh, talk ill of other people's reputation. But I think, you know, this is a, a historical document. It's an important book, and um, it's important to present it as, as it actually is. Yeah, and uh, uh, one of, you, you mentioned about the uh, 26 human 26,000 human lives dead died that from the attacks, uh, but uh, it was a Conrad. Uh, he said a 293 monasteries and churches in Germany were destroyed under the pretext of the new fifth gospel. They were attacked, looted, and despoiled yeah. their sacred and precious possessions by mobs whose hearts were filled with sedition and tumult under the noxious influence of Luther's errors. Yeah, exactly. That's a lot. Uh, so of this was, you know, a devastating uh, effect. And you know, you think about um, life back in those days. The church was a central part of people's, you know, not not only of their religious life, but also of their their daily life, their social life. The village church, the town church, would be like a a center of community. It was the the source of stability in their life. They would realize, you know. Um, that the church would always be there was this assumption and that's why the church buildings were you know often such such grand uh grand constructions because they gave people this sense of the stability the unchanging nature of the truth the fact that god was there that god always would be there um and then to have these things suddenly overturned um would have been disastrous for people's for people's lives for their spiritual and mental well-being to have what had been the foundations of their life suddenly overturned you know and uh, I, I think we shouldn't underestimate the importance of faith for common people uh, back at this point in history it was the one solid foundation of, of life and to see the church overthrown um, meant you know, it was almost like the end of the world for a lot of people. And and because of this, there was immediately a kind of moral decay. And I think we're seeing this also uh, in, in our modern society, where, you know, the Christian faith is no longer assumed, the existence of God is no longer assumed, objective wrong and right is no longer assumed. And this, you know, means that people don't have a foundation. There's a sense that we can do whatever we want. And uh, of course, we see the disastrous consequences of that now, because for a person to live a happy and meaningful life, they have to have this solid foundation of faith, the assurance of that there is, you know, in a changing world, at least there is one unchanging reality. Even not just in Germany, the uh, the war with the Turks, uh, he was able to... yeah. Yeah, go ahead. It was it was was it fifteen twenty six? Charles V summoned the princes and that's right. the empire. So um, the holy the, the holy Roman emperor at the time, Charles V, summoned the princes and electors of the empire to consult regarding sending a military force into Hungary. 
to defend the nation against the Turks. Now, the Turks were making big incursions into Europe at this stage, uh, particularly from the eastern side. So Hungary was one of these countries that was under real threat. But many of these princes had fallen under the sway of Luther's heretical dogmas. And so they consulted him about the matter and about the course of action they should take. And Luther advised them absurdly that according to his own fifth gospel, it was not permissible to take up arms against the Turks for those who now gave their loyalty to Christ. Because of this, the king of Hungary was left without military aid against the fierce onslaught of the Turkish hordes. As a consequence, he lost not only his kingdom, but also his life. For as he fled from the barrage of his murderous foe, he was, alas, thrown from his steed. Landing in a swamp, he sunk under the muddy waters and so drowned to death. Um, very interesting story. One, one of the things I love about this book is he, meant, he throws in all of these interesting historical asides that you don't normally read about anywhere else that are either you know, just forgotten or considered to be inconsequential details, but these really add color, color to the narrative. And Luther had developed this theory um, that the Turkish onslaught was actually uh, designed by God to reprimand the, the Catholic Church. And this is why he was in favor of not fighting against the Turks. It wasn't that he actually, you know, loved the Turks or anything like that. Um, on the contrary, he was, you know, pretty, pretty much uh, violently against them. But he felt that, no, it's not right to defend Catholic kings against the Turkish onslaught. And um, who knows how many lives were lost as a consequence of this. It goes into, was it the, there was a Calvinist line, ra rather a Turk than a, than a papist or something like that. It was a, it was a medal that they made. I remember I got it on one of the videos. It was like, yeah. and so at his quote -quote, fruits just kept going. There's that book you, uh, you translated. It was a couple of years ago. It was on the atrocities in Scotland and, uh, uh, what's the name of that book? It was. It, it gets into brutal detail. Yeah, it was the the mirror of cruelty. Yes, and that, and, you talk um, about here. That's it, a supplement it, to this. <laughs> yeah, it it is. So those those kind of things were taking place um, at the time he's talking about, or in the years following. And um, because Lang wrote this book a little later, he he had seen many of these things, and he makes reference to to this widespread perse persecution of Catholics that was taking place. And this is particularly shocking because when you think about it, these the Catholics were people who only a, a few decades before had been fellow citizens with these new um, so-called reformed. And then now suddenly they're being tortured to death. So their own countrymen, uh, you know, are, are, are killing each other in the cruelest possible ways. I think this was... Um, you know, it's, it said you can judge um, a, a tree by its fruit. And you think, what are the fruits of this reformation, um, so-called reformation? Um, the, not only divisions within the church, but a horrendous wave of bloodshed throughout Europe. Um, a, a loss of faith in general, a loss of unity, a loss of moral clarity. We're, and we're still reverberating from the effects of this today, you know, and if we think about um, the, the the consequences of the Protestant schism, I think we still see that today because there's still this attitude that there's no absolute truth, that anyone's opinion on any question of faith or morals is just as good as another. And one of the the striking things we see when we look at the uh, the Protestant side of things is how quickly they fractured. So even within Luther's own lifetime, there were people who started off agreeing with him, but then, you know, split from him and divided up. And then, of course, Luther and Calvin, we sometimes imagine them as allies, but in fact, they couldn't stand each other's ideas. Um, you know, the, the Lutherans, you know, basically hated the Calvinists. The Calvinists hated the Lutherans. We, we sometimes imagine, yeah, they're all on the same general side, but within themselves, the, the Protestants were, you know, fractured and fractured and continually 
uh, continue to be fractured today. I mean, we know basically what Catholics believe, but you ask me, what do Protestants believe? And in fact, most of the time, they don't really even know themselves. Yeah. Uh, with the uh, one of the uh, last lines that uh, James uh, writes is, for this reason, no one ought to pour out prayers for his soul. Talking about the death of Luther. Uh, it goes back he to does. what you he, said about he lived that time, so he's not going to nice, you know, whippy around words, mixed words at all. No, he, he doesn't. And you know, I think, yeah, of course, um, James Lang. I mean, he was a historian. He was a learned writer. Um, he wasn't. He wasn't necessarily a saint, though. And no. some of the things he says, we might think they're a bit on the either on the crude side or the um, unforgiving side. But we have to remember that this was a guy who had experienced the personal hate himself. He had seen, you know, had uh, his relatives back in Scotland had been persecuted. Um, he himself was separated from his home country. He saw all this going. So he writes with a, a certain amount of anger. Um, it, it's justified anger, but of course, you know, personally, I think it's okay to pray for the redemption of of someone else's soul, even if we think, well, you know, maybe it's not doing any good. We can still give them the benefit. Yeah, no one's canonized the hell. There's yeah. no. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, yeah, um, exactly. But um, you know, from his perspective, and this was a perspective when these were still recent events, when these were still raw wounds within Europe and within people's hearts. He said that um, there are some heretics who will maintain that Luther was a holy man or saint and worthy of honor in his death. But I cannot find evidence of a single miracle which is creditably attributed to him. The authoritative church historian Laurentius Sirius, who was a Carthusian monk, um, states that he was in fact the most contemptible of wretches who misled countless souls to perdition. Martin Luther died unrepentant, stubborn in his heresy. For this one, no one ought to pour out prayers for his soul. Uh, very powerful words indeed. And, um, you know, I, I think today we still have a lot of correction to do um, against this Lutheran heresy, um, not only, you know, against with, with Protestantism, bringing them back to the idea that there is one church. God, Christ founded one church to, to continue the truth. But also within our own Catholic tradition, I think we, we need to be care, beware sometimes of a kind of creeping uh, crypto-Protestantism, the idea that people can just make things up for themselves, just make it up as they go along, decide questions of faith and morality independently of tradition. Um, and I think this is a, is, is a great error. So we need to remain firm to our true tradition of the Catholic faith, the one holy church founded by Christ. Yeah, amen to that. Don't let your emotion get the best of you and start thinking that uh, I know best, I know better. And uh, before you know it, you're not saying everyone's going to be that way. But I mean, I'm sure he didn't wake up in the morning and uh, say, you know what, I'm going to start a new religion. I, I'll, it gradually led to that. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And and because of his stubbornness and pride. Yeah, yeah. Well, the book's at uh, censusfidelionpress.com. It's funny to say that. I, I don't, I, it's just weird for me to still just be able to say that. And The Devil's Bagpipe, what a great title, The True Life of Martin Luther. The link will be in, underneath in the show notes. And really, if you just Use Amazon, go to Tansite, go to mine, go to, uh, there's quite a few places that Father Nixon has translations at. He's done a ton, EWTN, sat him on to talk about the resurrection series. So, uh, Father, thank you for all the translations you're, you've done. I'm, I've lost count how many of you've done. Uh, they're all great. They're very short, uh, which is not, not dogging anything. It's not two, 3,000 pages. It's not 300 pages. But if you complain about not having a good book to read, he's done, I don't know, they're all saints. You talk about, you know, that old line of read a book as long as it starts by ST. You've you've translated a ton of works. 
that uh, people haven't heard of before, written by saints and very learned uh, theologians of the time to, to edify people in this day. And uh, it's one of those books. There's a lot of books that people should be reading. And that's, I'm not just talking about Luther. I'm talking absolutely. about the, all the ones you've been translating. Yeah, absolutely, Steve. Yeah, it's great. And a great thanks for you to, uh, for helping to get these books out there, for, for letting people know about them too. It's, uh, it's wonderful work that you're doing. Well, as, as, as they say, keep. Uh, I know it's a cliche. Keep up the good work. Hey, is will uh, maybe somebody? I know this is a carve out. Will there be other quote? Uh, will there be other carve outs of uh, the history of heretics uh, founders from that particular book? Will there be more than Luther, or is that just uh, Luther you're throwing on? Yeah, look, I, I'm I'm thinking about um, you know the life of Calvin as well, and trying to. To um, because yeah, I think probably Catholics probably know even less about Calvin than they do about Luther, on oh, the whole. Sure. Yeah. Um, and what we know about Luther is is largely mythology. You know, largely things we've, which is taught from Protestant sources, so kind of hagiographical. Um, but but as for Calvin, you know, um, yeah, Catholics generally don't know all that much about him, and I think it'd be great to uh, to to share a bit about. So I'm going to look at some of the the early sources uh, on his life and and see what we, what I can come up with. Oh, very good. That'd be, I'd be I would like to see that one. I don't know much about him outside of uh, I mean I, you know that he came after Luther really and he was big in Geneva. Outside of that, I really know little. Uh, anyway, Father, before you go, can you give everybody a, a final blessing? Yes. Through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary and our Holy Father, Saint Benedict. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down upon you and remain with you always. Mm -hmm.